This morning as we look at the scripture, um, I'd like to, during the season uh, of Advent, to, to look at this idea of God with us and, and what does that look like over time and, and really look at God's desire to be with us. That, it is his desire to be with us. He created us to, to have communion with us, to have a relationship with us. And, and what does that look like over history? What does that look like over um, the scriptures? What do we see? How do we see that revealed? And so the, today, I want to go back to the beginning and, and, and look at God's desire from the very beginning to be in a relationship with us, to, to be with us. Um, now, we don't know everything of what that looked like, but we have some ideas of what that looked like through the scripture, and so we're going to dive into that a little bit this morning. Um, but before we do, I, I want to start just right at the beginning where, where Jerry did uh, with Genesis 1-1 and, and begin there, look at man as well. We're going to look at God first, then man, and then look at God's desire to, to know intimately and to dwell among man. But then we're going to close with this idea and this reality where we lived with today where rebellion has come in and really changed everything, changed everything. Uh, and so what does that mean for you and I today? And so in Genesis 1-1, if you'll turn there, uh, it simply says this, In the beginning God, he created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless at that time uh, and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And then it says, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And so what do we see right here from the beginning is the Bible doesn't begin with man. The Bible begins with God. And that's a big, big fact that we need to know. And I pray for you that this Advent season begins with God. That it just doesn't center around you and your life, what you want. And I know sometimes that's hard. Sometimes life centers around everything we want, right? But life is about God. It begins there. That's where Scripture begins in Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning. So we see four foundations here, four primitive foundations from the very beginning of time in the universe. We see in the beginning, time. And then it says, God created, so we see this force, that the force behind the creation of, of the universe, of the world, and we see the heavens, so we see space, and then we also see the earth, so we see mass there, so we see these foundations, but namely what we see is we see God. We see God. And that word God right there in the Hebrew is the word Elohim. It's a, it's a singular plural. You might be thinking this morning, why do I really care about that being singular plural well here's the idea is scripture reveals God in places like Deuteronomy 6 all the way through the New Testament that God is one but he is revealed in three separate persons same substance right but three entities three separate persons and we see that revealed throughout scripture so with this idea of God's name here right off the bat in the very beginning is that it leaves the room for the idea of the Some verses over, look at verse 26, we enter in this conversation of the Godhead. And it says in verse 26, then God said, let us, capital U, 
Make man in our image, capital O, according to our likeness, capital O. And so you see these pronouns here, right? Us, our, our, right? What do we see here? This is the Godhead communicating. This is the Godhead in communication with each other. And so here you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit. We see that revealed throughout Scripture You have this communication going on, this dialogue, this conversation going on right here in the beginning. In the midst of creation, here on day six, on verse 26, you see God, one but three separate persons here communicating, communicating. Now, how do we know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Obviously, we don't see that written out here in Genesis chapter one. We see room for that. We see the that the truth of that being available and possible, but we see it revealed throughout Scripture. In fact, namely in places like the New Testament, you see in John uh, chapter four where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and he says that, that the Father desires worshipers. The Father desires to be worshiped. He's created us to worship him and that the Father, that God is spirit. And we see Jesus, when he was here on earth, that he obeyed what? The Father's will. And that's what you and I are to obey as well. And so we see the Father revealed in places like John 14, where Jesus will say that the Father and I are one as well. And so we see God the Father revealed in Scripture. We also see God the Son, Jesus Christ. Namely, in places like John chapter 1, verse 1, which sound very similar to Genesis 1, 1 as well. But it's up on the screen. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things came to being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so the Word of God was right there in the beginning of creation. He is the creator. So who is the word? The idea of the word is the revelation of God. In fact, in John 1:14, if you jump down a little bit, I don't think we put that on the screen for you, but it says that the word became flesh. That's Jesus. That's Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is here in the beginning. He is the creator. Colossians chapter one, verse 15 through 17, says about Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He's before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. And so right here in the beginning, you have the Father, you have the Son, and not only that, you have the Holy Spirit. And in verse 2, we we see that where it says that the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over the surface of the waters, kind of like a a bird, right? This wings out, hovering over. And so you have this tender picture of the Holy Spirit. It's a very tender, caring picture in his creative work. And so the Holy Spirit we see here, and we see in other places as well, revealed throughout the New Testament as well. And so what is God doing? The one God, three persons, what is he doing? The Bible says he's creating. It's the word bara. And he's creating out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing, God is creating. So this isn't some random, chaotic act that's happening. It's not some accidental thing that's happening. No, this is a very planned design where the great architect, the great craftsman, the great 
artist, God himself, is creating the heavens and the earth, and he creates it with great purpose, with great purpose. The Bible tells us in Psalm 19.1 that the heavens are telling of what? The glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Yesterday, my, my family and I, one of the things that we love to do this time of year is we love to go out to a Christmas tree farm out toward East Texas. And so yesterday we took um, my wife's grandmother out there uh, to her house back home. And then on the way back, we, we came back by the, the Christmas tree farm. And some years we, we don't come back with a tree Right? In fact, I think the last two years, we will go out there, we'll drink the hot cider, and we'll look at the trees and, and jump and play around. My kids love to, uh, to, to do different things out there and take pictures. Uh, the guys really love to take pictures. My boys love to take pictures. So uh, we're out there hanging around, and, and sometimes it means we, we have to drive by Home Depot on the way home <laughs> to get a tree or uh, get a pre-cut one because maybe we don't see that perfect tree, um, but this year we got that perfect tree, we, we cut that bad boy down, and um, it, it, we called it, my wife has nicknamed it Big Bertha, right? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't ask you if I could share that, that's a drop right there. Uh, my wife, last night she's, I, we're going to call her Big Bertha, because man, that tree, when it comes down to the bottom, it's just, it's like, it's, it's, it's wide, man, and I'm like, wow, that's big. It looks very big in our dining room. Hello. So uh, we had to rearrange a little bit. But, um, but I love a, a story of old. Many believe it's a, a legend. Um, and I know m- there's many different thoughts on Christmas trees, and some people can, can get on their uh, high horse or whatever when it comes to it. And uh, some, of, you know, some people think it has this pagan r- origins. I mean, there's some people that even go super spiritual and use places like in Jeremiah to that, hey, that's talking about a Christmas tree. And I was like, I don't really think so. But, but there's a great legend of, of Martin Luther. And I say legend because we don't know if there's truth in it. But the, the story goes like this, that, that Luther back in the 1500s one night just was out among the stars and looking at the sky and was amazed at creation. And he, he wanted to bring it into his house. Now, I'm sure Luther was amazed at creation many times. I don't know about the story about him bringing it in the house, but the story goes like this. They cut down a fir, brought it in his house. But he wasn't happy just with that, so he started putting candles on the tree. Now, if your kid's in here and you're hearing candles on the tree, candles go on birthday cakes, right? <laughs> candles on a tree. It's pretty risky, right? That was, I don't know how much of a good idea that was, but... But the story goes there that put candles on there because he wanted to bring in to his home creation and the beauty of it so that they didn't have to walk outside just, just to see the beauty of creation, the glory of God, but they wanted to behold it there in the house. He wanted to behold, allow his kids to see that right there in his house. And a legend that is told, and it was Psalm 19.1 that Luther was encouraged by. And, and so as we think of creation, why did God create all things for his glory, for his glory. And so this time of year, I, I pray as you take in the sights, as you look at things, do you remember that God created all things for his glory and the pinnacle, the summit of his creation is you and I. And that's the next point this morning is simply man, right? So we see God, 
We see that he created, and who did he create? He created man. And so if you go back to Genesis 1, 26, it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the seas, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God did what? He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God creates man. Unthinkable, amazing. That God creates human being, the human race. It's the pinnacle, it's the summit of his creation. I want us to see right here, look at verse one. It says, or uh, excuse me, Chapter 1, verse 26, it says, let us make man. I love that phrase. It's, it's emphatic. And I want you to hear this this morning. The reason it's emphatic right there, let us make. It's the idea of majesty. Majesty of the maker. It's a very humbling statement this morning for you and I. There's going to be a couple times this morning where, where we have to conclude that you and I have no room for even a hint of pride. That God is the maker. He's majestic. And he makes man. And so here we see uh, God making man. But how does he make man? He creates us in the image of himself. The image was imparted only to you and I, to humans, um, and when we think about God, John 4, 24 says that God is, is spirit. Um, so he doesn't have this, this physical form. So this idea of image or likeness in the normal sense of these words is, is not that, oh, we look in the mirror, we look, look like him. That's not the idea. Now, when you get to the places like New Testament, as Paul talks about uh, to the church in Corinth, he's going to talk about us being in the image of God to bear Christ's image, to be like Jesus. And obviously, we want to be like Jesus um, but in this sense, what does that mean? It means right here in this moment that humans share, okay, because of sin, we share it now imperfectly, finitely. Obviously, that's been disrupted. But we share these communicable life, transmittable attributes. And so what does that mean? It means like personality, it means truth, it means wisdom, it means love, holiness, justice, uh, we have the capacity for those things. We have the capacity for spiritual fellowship with God, and that's the big one, so that we could reflect him here in the earth, that we could be the light of the world, Matthew 5 says. That's how God designed us. And so I want to share with you one quote. I had two, but the first one I'm, I'm just thinking is probably a little too heady for this morning. So, but the second one is this. It's, it's by Anthony Hokema. If you ever want to read about the image of God and how we were created in the image of God, this is a guy to read. But he says this. He says, God the Father has given us in Jesus Christ a visual example of what the image of God is. There is no better way of seeing the image of God than to look at Jesus himself. What we see and hear in Christ is what God intended for man. And that's how God created us, is, is in his image and we see that in Jesus we see that in his son and in verse 27 it emphasizes here that God created three times over us he created he created he created he created you and I 
He is our maker. That's the relationship we have with him right here from the beginning. He is our creator. And he also creates us with distinction. And this is part of the creative order of gender, right? Male and female. That's a big deal today. A big hot topic in our society. But we see that right here. That God created us in his image with unique and these separate genders, male and female. He created us that way. And so you are unique. You are a one-of-a-kind creation of God. That's what we see right here. God made the universe, and personally and individually, he crafted you and I as a a one-of-a-kind centerpiece, masterpiece with his name attached, unthinkable, unthinkable. That's what God did. And so what I want to do is I want to peer in a little deeper. What did that look like, right? Because we kind of have this big idea. God created us in his image, all right? We're to reflect him in the world. He created us male and female. He's going to give us uh, things to do. He blessed us to be fruitful, multiply, to, to populate uh, the, the earth and the world, right? I get joked about a lot of times when, when I teach on that or even just mention that verse, we see an increase in our preschool. So that's great. Um, that is good. That's a good thing. God said so right here. So you're obeying a command, all right? Well done. Uh, a part of ruling and subduing uh, as well. But I want us to look at this. In Genesis 2, look at verse 7, all right? I, I love this part of Scripture. Because what Moses does right here is he, 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 he mentions, right, the first seven days, what those look like in Genesis 1. But then in Genesis chapter 2, he goes in, he focuses in on God's Creative work in making you and I, in making man, right? And so look what he says. This is very precious, some anthropology here. As we read this, um, man, I don't know if there's anything, there's a, eh, I don't know if there's anything more beautiful than this. The psalm, uh, psalmist was taken back, Psalm 139, as he thought about this uh, as well. But look at, Verse seven, he says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that was pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what do we see right here? We see God takes this man, he takes him from the dust of the ground. So we see the mixture of, of what? We see dust and we see deity all in the same verse here. He takes man from the dust and he makes him and he breathes, nostril to nostril, breathes into him so that he can be a living soul. He can have a, a soul that is alive. And in that moment, he creates to the first man, what happens in that moment? What's the first thing that Adam sees? You know, is it, is it a theophany? Does he, does he see God appearing right there before his eyes? Can you imagine that? And so here, he forms man like a potter does with clay, like a skilled craftsman, like an artist. He, he forms, he fashions Adam with great planning, with great design. Tender, loving care. So much so, Psalm 139, the psalmist says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
from deity and dust in the image of God. God creates man. He breathes into his nostrils to have this breath of life, to have his living soul. But I want us to see what he does right here. Look at verse 8. God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. Eden, the word Eden means pleasure. And so this garden was to be pleasurable, a delight, a place of beauty, a place to enjoy. But I want us to see namely the last part of verse 8. He there placed the man whom he had formed. He put the man there. He put the man there to enjoy the garden. That idea of placing is the idea of rest and safety. The idea of placing him there was to enjoy a place where God's presence was. Think about it this way. In the Old Testament, we see the presence of God in, in, a, in a tabernacle. We see the presence of God in different ways. Here you have the presence of God in the garden, right there with man, having fellowship with God. So what did this fellowship look like of God with, with man? Look at chapter three, verse, verse eight and verse nine. Now, we know what happens through verse one down in chapter three. It, it goes awry, right? It, things get messy. But I want us to see right here, what, what did this fellowship potentially look like? What would this interaction with God look like? In verse eight, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. They did that because of their disobedience, right? And their shame, and their guilt. But, but think about the other side, before sin enters in, God's walking in the cool of the day, right? God is there. His presence is there. I don't know everything what that looked like. But he is there, they're communing with him, right there. And then if you go down to verse nine, not only that, you have it say, then the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? So God's communicating, speaking to them. So think about this in chapter two. Here is Adam in the garden. God's walking around during the day. God's communicating during the day. And there's this perfect communion, this fellowship. And he's enjoying the presence of God. He's enjoying the creation of God that God has created for him to enjoy. John 17, 3, Jesus prayed this. He prayed, this is eternal life, Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Is this not what we have right here in, in, in chapter two, verse eight, the picture of eternal life? Being in the presence of God, knowing God. Jesus, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. Wow. We see that here in the garden. It's a picture of knowing God. It's a picture of eternal life. It's a picture of God with us, what he intended for us to have from the beginning from the beginning. Part of that as well, um, if you go down a little bit to verse 15 and 17, it, it says the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of the Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So this is before the fall. So if you're thinking that work was like part of the curse, uh, you know, it came after the fall, breaking news, no, work is part of God's creative plan. Work is good, right? And so we work for the glory of God, 
And so God put man in the garden also to cultivate it, to keep it. So he's, he's tending to it. He's working the ground. And then if you look further on in chapter or 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Man, God provides and says you may enjoy from every tree. Wow, can you imagine that fruit, right? Untainted by anything. I mean, perfect, right? Amazing. But then look at verse 17 as well. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat from it. You will surely die. And and so God right here reminds man that he is subject to him. That God is the master. He is the maker. And we are to obey him. And so we see this law that's imposed here as a sign of subjection. Therefore, the, the test of one tree was a test of what? It was a test of obedience, that we are to obey him. He is the master. He is the maker, and we're to obey him. And so in this way, God designed that the whole human race should be, from the very beginning, accustomed to do what? To revere him and to obey him. And so his command here implies that, guess what? He knows best as the maker, that he knows best, that he has all authority He knows what is good and what is not good for man. And so we see that symbolized here um, in the tree. And so man is to obey. And so many call what we see here in Genesis 1 and 2 the Edenic covenant. Uh, They're unconditional promises of how this relationship between the maker and the creation, the creator, man, the pinnacle of it, should look like. And what should they do? They should... Uh, propagate the human race, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right, with people, uh, subdue the earth for human habitation, exercise dominion over the animal creation, see that verse 18, care for, enjoy the garden of Eden, uh, enjoy it, cultivate it, keep it, and then lastly, to abstain from eating from one of the trees. This is, God said, hey, this is how the relationship is supposed to work from the beginning of time. Him is the maker We is the creation. And we are to enjoy his presence. And we're going to see him create the need for community, that we need community as well. And we see that he's going to create uh, Eve, a woman, um, that we, it's not good for man to be alone. He's going to create marriage as well. And this is all in his presence, right? This was in his presence. And this is how he wanted it to be. But as we close this morning, I want you to hear this, that all was lost. But that's what God intended it to be. That's what he wanted for you and I from the very beginning. But look what happens. If you go to chapter 3, I want you to go to verse 22. Um, I'm going to encourage you today, if you're not familiar maybe with this part of Scripture, um, go back and read the beginning of chapter 3, but But the law that was given to Adam to obey, to to not eat of the one tree. Remember, he can eat from any tree over and over and over, but not to eat from the one. And Adam and Eve will. They they will eat. And it wasn't just their actions that they eat of the tree, right? But it was their heart. They disobeyed. They disobeyed God that they stiffed armed God and said, listen, we're not going to revere you 
as the master. We're not gonna subject ourselves to you. We're gonna do what we wanna do. And so look at verse 22. It says, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand, take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. What's the point? Genesis 3, what happens is, is man wants to call the shots and not bend a knee to the creator. Doesn't want to bow their hearts to the creator. But they want to call the shots. They want control. They want to be God. Ultimately, that's what's happening here. They want control. And so what's the result? Verse 23. So remember chapter 2, verse 8, right? Creates him from the dust, breathes into his nostrils, living being. He places him then into the Garden of Eden to enjoy relationship, fellowship with God, with himself. But look at verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Wow. You go from enjoying, being in the safety and the rest and the presence of God Almighty, the maker. And then he places you out. No longer to cultivate the garden, no longer to enjoy that, but now you're going outside. And then look at verse 24. He drove the man out. Wow, those words are powerful. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Kicked out of the garden. Kicked out. Kicked out of the presence of God. All is lost. Paradise lost. Separation forever. No way back in to enjoy that intimate presence of God. Why? Because Man does not want to submit to God. That's why. And here in this moment, we find that you and I do not find true joy. We do not find our full fulfillment in liberating ourselves, having freedom from submission to God. But that's what Everyone wants, we want freedom, we want liberation to do our own thing. But we see right here where that ends. You see, man's good, your good, my happiness, our joy depends on one thing this morning. Being with God. That's what it depends on. Being with God. And that's lost here because man did not want to live in submission to him. So everything changes. You see, in Psalm 16, 11, this is what they tasted in Saul. It says, in your presence is fullness of joy, God. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. That's the presence of God. And they had that. Just like that. Because they want to control. Stiff-armed God. 
and all is lost. And that's the reality of mankind today. Paradise lost because we want to do our own thing and not to submit to our creator and master. Now, the greatest news of all is it doesn't end there, right? We know the story doesn't end. God is gracious. He's loving. He's caring. In fact, in that same scripture, we see one of the most beautiful prophecies that will come true. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, God does, that there will be one that will come and he will bruise the head of Satan. Satan will bruise him on the heel. That's what the cross is, the cross that Jesus died on. But Jesus will come and crush Satan for all, once and for all. It's a beautiful picture of what's to come. You see, there was a tree in the garden, right? There's a tree in the garden, and it stood there between man and death. And God, instead of choosing life, or excuse me, man, instead of choosing life, he chose death by taking of the tree. But I want you to know there's another tree that was prophesied about where Jesus would come and he would die on. And he would stand between man and death. And if we would submit to him, bend and bow our life and trust him, we would have life. And what was once lost would be restored. And just with the picture of Alyssa this morning, what a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done. God has given his son so that we can be reconciled. What was broken and lost there in the garden It's gone, but now through Jesus, it's reconciled. Peace between God and man. And so if you're here today, if if you've never experienced what it means to be in a restored relationship with God, to to be in reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you, take that first step this morning and subject yourself to the master, to the creator. Trust him, believe in him, and he will give you life eternal. Let me pray.